If you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 8, uh, just four verses this morning. I'm going to make up for going over time last week. Uh, Acts chapter 8, looking at verses 1 through 4. Let's all stand together as I'll read these verses. Acts chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Father, I pray that uh, these next few minutes will be profitable for each one of us as we study uh, your word. We seek to grow by it. Pray that your spirit would fill each, each person here as we listen and uh, attempt to apply as faithfully as we can the words of Scripture today. Teach us about you, about uh, the faith that we ought to have in your providence we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, that single question has caused many to deny uh, the very existence of God. Something tragic happens uh, to you or to someone that you love, and all of a sudden you end up turning your back on God, or maybe even questioning if God even exists. How could a wise and loving God allow people to go through the types of suffering that we see all around us. And often this question becomes all the more disorienting when we're talking about Christians. Uh, someone begins following Jesus and then they lose their job, or a cancer diagnosis is given, whatever the case may be. And somewhere along the way, we got in our minds that this sort of thing wasn't supposed to happen to Christians. As if because I'm living for Jesus now, I, I should be immune to such trials. Now, some of the problem here is just bad theology, of course. The Bible nowhere says that life becomes easy when you follow Jesus. In fact, as we read Scripture, we see one after another people who suffered and even were killed because of their faith in Christ. And so we should be surprised when we face such things ourselves. But to the, to the broader question of why does God allow such tragedies to take place, I think our text this morning will help us think about this issue. And the first question you have to ask is, how do you even define a tragedy? This is Jim Elliott. Uh, he was born in 1927 in Portland, Oregon. He was born to Christian parents who raised him in church and taught him the Bible from the time he was a child. He attended Wheaton College, uh, and in addition to studying linguistics, he was known as a great orator. In, in 1950, Jim Elliott heard of a group of indigenous people in Ecuador named the Alcas. Uh, they were known to be violent and considered uh, very dangerous to outsiders, uh, cannibals, in fact. Jim Elliott decided that he was going to go to Ecuador and try to reach the Alcas with the gospel. A lot of people, including his own parents, tried to dissuade him from going. But he was convinced that this is what God wanted him to do. And so in 1955... Jim Elliott and four of his friends flew down to Ecuador. And to make a long story short, their efforts were very short-lived uh, before they had even entered the first village. Ten of the Alca warriors met the missionaries and killed them all. What a tragedy. Jim Elliott, by the way, was only 28 years old. So much potential in these five men. 
They had devoted themselves to serve the Lord only to have their lives taken before they could seemingly accomplish anything. I'm reminded of that story when I read the account of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. If you were here with us last week, you remember the story. Uh, Stephen was a great man. He had a great reputation in the church. Uh, He was one of the seven men chosen from the, the whole church in Jerusalem to serve as deacons. Stephen was said to be a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He was a skilled debater who reasoned from the scriptures and powerfully convinced people that Jesus was the Messiah. He's somebody that you might look at and think, man, God can really use someone like Stephen. But then he died. He preached a sermon to the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem and made them so angry that verse 57 says they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Stoning was a common form of execution in Israel. The one being stoned would first be pushed off of a high place, and sometimes that fall would end up killing them. If not, the executioners would throw rocks at the person until eventually they would die. And of course, these are not little stones. These are, think, bricks. You know, in order to kill somebody with rocks, they have to have some decent size. These would be thrown over and over until eventually the person died. Verse 59 says, as they were stoning Stephen, He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. What a tragedy. Here was a gifted, spiritual man that God was using greatly. And because of his witness, his faith in Jesus, and his speaking up for Christ, he was killed. Now, I want to remind you of how the book of Acts begins, because as we discussed uh, this past Wednesday, the stoning of Stephen is a major turning point in the book. So we need to take a step back and remind ourselves uh, where we're at. First, we want to look at the last few verses of the book of Luke. Remember, uh, the book of Acts is volume two uh, from from Luke. It's the sequel of of, uh, Luke's gospel. And so uh, Luke has written these two historical accounts, uh, and in the prequel, if you will, the book of Luke, the very end of it, Jesus says to his disciples, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So that's how the book of Luke ended. Uh, Jesus sends out his disciples to go out into all of the world, to all of the nations, with the message of the gospel. That Jesus died and rose again the third day, and if people will repent of their sins and commit their lives to Christ, they can be forgiven. And he says to them, start in Jerusalem, and then go out from here to all of the nations of the world. Turn uh, turn the page over to Acts chapter 1, and Jesus says, uh, as he is ascending to the Father's right hand, verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So uh, verse 9 says, when he had said these things, they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. These are the marching orders for the church, the last instructions that Jesus gave to his followers. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, and then you will be witnesses of my death and resurrection. Begin in Jerusalem, start there, preach the gospel there, then go out into all of Judea, 
and then Samaria, and then go to the ends of the earth. Just so you can visualize this, uh, Jesus says, start here in Jerusalem where they were, uh, then go out into Judea, that's the whole, re the whole uh, region including Jerusalem, then go north into Samaria, and then from there go out into the ends of the earth. The goal is for the gospel of Jesus to be preached everywhere, for all of the nations under heaven to be discipled uh, to follow Christ. Now, fast forward to Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost comes, the Holy Spirit uh, fills these Christians, and Peter preaches that great sermon that launches the church in Jerusalem. And at the end of that text, 3,000 people are saved, baptized, and added to the church. And it just keeps growing from there. That's just the beginning of this church in Jerusalem. The Lord is adding to their number daily, Acts 2 says. By the time we get to Acts chapter 4, we read of this church in Jerusalem. It says, Many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. This is a huge church. The church in Jerusalem is growing every day. It's thriving. People are being saved all over the city. By the time we get to Acts chapter 5, the Jewish leaders say to the apostles, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And so they did exactly what Jesus said to do. Start in Jerusalem. Preach the gospel all over this city. But then Jesus said, go out into Judea. That's the region that Jerusalem is located in. It would be sort of like saying, start in Miller Beach, then go out into all of Gary. And so he says, start in Jerusalem. And at this point, Jerusalem has been filled with the gospel. Thousands of converts, pretty much everybody living here in the city at this point, uh, would have heard the message of Jesus from these Christians. Again, Acts chapter 6 says the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. You notice that this is all centered in this one city uh, here in Jerusalem. Then comes the stoning of Stephen. So far, things have been going great. The church has been growing and thriving. The presence of God in this church was obvious. But then the apostles were arrested and beaten. And then Stephen was arrested and killed. The momentum of the church seemed to be gone now as persecution and opposition from the Jewish leaders was setting in. Verse 1 of our text shows us that Stephen's death was the beginning of this initial wave of severe persecution. And at the head of this persecution was a young man named Saul. Luke writes, Saul approved of his execution, speaking of Stephen's stoning. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul was a Pharisee. Uh, he was trained by the leading teacher uh, in Judaism at the time, Gamaliel. We ran into him a few chapters ago. Uh, Saul was from the city of Tarshish, a city of Cilicia. Uh, Saul at this point was a young man, very zealous about Judaism. Back in Acts chapter 6, we're told, uh, some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia in Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Seeing as Paul was from Cilicia, it's a pretty sure bet that he was one of those who debated with Stephen, who was disputing with him openly. Luke makes a point of telling us that as they were stoning Stephen, the witnesses laid their garments down at the feet of Saul. Not only did Saul approve of Stephen's execution, 
uh, hearing Stephen's condemnation of the Jewish leaders seemed to enrage him. He began going on a rampage throughout Jerusalem, going from house to house, dragging off to prison any Christians that he could find. Again, things seemed to be going terribly now. God's hand was so evidently at work among them in the past, and yet now people are being arrested and killed because of their faith in Christ. All of this seems like a tragedy, like God is no longer involved. And yet, verse 1 says, Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And then notice verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. The Jewish leaders thought that they were going to silence these Christians by killing Stephen and imprisoning the rest. Uh, That'll teach them. That will surely shut these guys up. But this plan backfired big time. Uh, The persecution here against the church in Jerusalem caused the Christians to flee the city. And they were scattered all over Judea and Samaria. And everywhere that they went, they preached the gospel. This is Acts 1.8 being fulfilled. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. No one can stop the advance of Christ's kingdom on earth. As Psalm 2 says, the kings of the earth may plot, the rulers may gather themselves together against the Lord, but he who sits in the heavens laughs. Their plotting is all in vain. Jesus said that his disciples would testify to his death and resurrection, first in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and then beyond. And the catalyst for the spreading of the kingdom to those regions beyond Jerusalem was this persecution. What seemed like a tragedy was actually a tool in God's hand to mobilize the church. And as we're going to see next week, a specific example of this in the city of uh, Samaria where Philip goes and preaches and there's a revival that breaks out in that city. All of this goes back to Stephen's speech from last Sunday. Uh, Without re-preaching all of that, let me just remind you of one point that Stephen brought up. Uh, He used the Old Testament example of Joseph from the end of the book of Genesis If you're familiar with Genesis, then you should know this story very well. God had used the rejection of Joseph's brothers and them selling Joseph uh, into slavery into Egypt. God had worked through all of that to save Joseph and his whole family from starvation. A famine was coming, and so God orchestrated all of these terrible things to happen to Joseph, being sold into slavery, being lied about and imprisoned, uh, all of it to get Joseph to the place where he could end up saving all of them, including his own life. And the same thing happened with Jesus. Jesus was rejected and killed on a cross, but that was part of the plan. God had ordained that to take place in order that Jesus could bear our sins on the cross and rise victorious over death, thus providing for us salvation from our sins and eternal life. And here's where we get back to my question from earlier. How do you define a tragedy? Was Joseph being sold as a slave tragic? I bet if you asked Joseph at the time, he would say it was. How about Jesus dying on the cross? Jesus' disciples certainly thought that was a terrible thing the night that he died. They had hoped that he was their Messiah, and now all of those hopes seemed to be dashed. But it only appeared to be a tragedy because they couldn't see what God was doing through it. And just like Joseph's trials seemed terrible at the time, and Jesus' death seemed tragic, so the martyrdom of Stephen seemed to be a major blow to the church. 
Not only was this a great servant in the church that was killed, but this also sparked Saul to persecute the church in Jerusalem. But God was using that to advance his kingdom to places it had not yet gone. And from an eternal perspective, that's good. That's more souls saved. That's more churches planted and people serving Christ. This is what it's all about. So here's the point. We have no idea what God is doing. And it's really foolish for us to try to question what he's doing. Trying to figure out uh, the plan and actions of God in the world is like a monkey trying to learn algebra. Okay, it's way beyond our capacity to even comprehend all that God is doing. And when we criticize God for allowing something that seems to us to be terrible, we're basically saying that we could do a better job managing the universe than the God who created us. Uh, John Piper, one of my uh, favorite preachers to listen to, he likes to say that God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you might be aware of three of them. Uh, I think that's a helpful perspective. I'll go a step further and say you may never know why God did something. Of course, you're not always going to be able to trace his hand. This is where faith comes in. Uh, we see how God worked in Scripture even through circumstances that seemed out of control and tragic, how God works through that to accomplish his purposes. We've seen in our own lives, some of us, how God has done the same thing. Even through difficult times, things that we, we thought were, were bad, he used them to shape us, and, and so we trust him for the rest. So why do bad things happen to good people? Well, first of all, what do you mean good people? And then secondly, what do you mean bad things? The premise of the question assumes things that we can't possibly know. If you question God and try to figure out all of the possible reasons for why he allows things to take place, you will drive yourself nuts. But you can rest in the fact that he is in control. God doesn't do things without reasons, <clears throat> even if you and I may never understand those reasons. Uh, Romans 8.28 says, We know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, that doesn't mean all things will work out in the way that you want them to, but they will work out for good. For Stephen, that meant being stoned to death. <clears throat> that was part of God's good plan. And that's where I want to close this morning. You may say, okay, maybe the stoning of Stephen and this persecution, maybe that was good for the kingdom. Uh, maybe that was used by God to spread the gospel to Judea and Samaria. But for Stephen, it was a tragedy, wasn't it? I don't think so. I read the account of Stephen dying as a martyr, and I think to myself, what a great way to die. He didn't die slowly of some disease. He didn't waste his life away. He died in service to his Lord. And his death was used to send the gospel to the nations. Back in Acts chapter 7, this is right as Stephen is concluding the sermon that got him killed. Verse 54 says, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then verse 59 says, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And a moment later, Stephen was in the presence of God. Jesus was standing there to welcome his servant home. That's not a tragic death. That's a victory. As Stephen entered the presence of his Lord and heard, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Receive your reward. I cannot imagine anything but joy 
filling Stephen's heart. Matthew 16, 26, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you live your life for yourself, Jesus says you lose it in the end. But if you live your life for Christ, you'll find it eternally. Verse 26, for what, what will a profit a man if he gains the whole world, if he lives it up for the pleasures and comforts and he, he accumulates everything that everyone in this world thinks is precious, but he forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay to each person according to what he has done. So how do you define a tragedy? A life lost in order to be found eternally? That doesn't seem tragic to me. A person who lives in pleasures and comforts now only to lose their life eternally? That's a tragedy. Now we end where we begin. I told you about uh, Jim Elliott and his four missionary friends. Uh, how they were all killed in Ecuador by the Alcas, but I didn't tell you the rest of the story. I didn't tell you about Elizabeth Elliot, Jim Elliot's wife. <clears throat> How she went back to Ecuador. And reached the very people who killed her husband. how that act of unfathomable love and forgiveness broke the hard hearts of the Alcas and led to many of them being saved. <clears throat> this story has been told many times, even in uh, books and movies in recent years. It continues to inspire Christians to persevere in our efforts to reach the lost. Because what seemed like a tragedy, a pointless death, Five young men who committed themselves to Christ being speared to death. That's been used by God to advance the kingdom of Christ far beyond <coughs> what Jim Elliot could have ever imagined. I close with this. <coughs> After his death, they found <coughs> Jim Elliot's diary, which recounts much of the story of his Life, you can read about in a book called uh, Through Gates of Splendor. Basically pulls from these diaries of these men. <clears throat> it was written, by the way, by uh, Elizabeth Elliot. And uh, one of the famous quotes that they found in that diary from Jim Elliot, he writes this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. It's basically saying, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. May God help each one of us to have that eternal perspective on how we live our lives.